Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. I've got a treat for you this time. I've got two doctors, May and Tim. So, May and Tim... Can you tell me when and where you were born and describe what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to and the education that you received? So ladies first, oh. we won't ask you <laughs> when you were born, but where were you born? Could oh, lady. that's polite. I don't, I don't mind telling my age. I'm kind of proud of how I've aged gracefully. So <laughs> I'll share. Um, so I was born... Um, I'm October, I'm a fall baby, in 1966. And uh, I was born in a place called Flin Flon in Manitoba, Canada. Um, so I'm Canadian born and raised. And the town, Flin Flon, which has a very funny name, um, is a mining community. It was about eight, grew to 10,000 people, northern part of Manitoba province in Canada, right in the middle of the country. Um, for people that aren't from Canada, close to Hudson Bay. Uh, so we don't have polar bears up there, although we are pretty close. It's Canadian shield, like lots of um, granite, lakes everywhere, trees, um, and, you know, very cold in the winter, 40 below type of thing. So my parents were born and raised there. My grandparents, both sets um, moved there as young adults to both work at the mine, Hudson Bay Mining and Smelting Company. So HBMS or Hudson Bay or the Bay Company, very well known in Canada. Mm. Um, the mine is a copper zinc mining and smelting. So that was what most of the industry was around. And yeah, my parents, both born and raised there, had me. I was the firstborn child. Um, my parents were a little older, so they were married in 65, and, you know, my mom was about 28. Dad was close to 30, so for times back then, they were a little older, and um, I was an only child for seven years. Uh, did my, I have a sister. She's seven years younger. She was a little a bit of a, a oopsie-daisy, as we call it. Uh, a mistake. <laughs> yes, an accident. An accident. Not a. An I guess accident. not mistakes. Probably not politically correct anymore, right? Ooh. Just an afterthought, baby. <laughs> an after no thought. After baby, no thought. Actually. Exactly. Yeah. So, so well, I grew. Sixty six, obviously, was um, was a momentous year for England at that time, because we kind of won the World Cup. And that's about the only notoriety that we've got. Ah, in 1966. <laughs> it's yeah. funny because I, I, I've never really been into football. And the day of the, the World Cup, I was busy with a couple of mates um, making some explosive in the shed, and we blew the shed up and took out no the windows <laughs> down the street. And if England hadn't have won that day, we would have been in even more trouble than we was actually in. <laughs> Wow. So no kidding. <laughs> Saved by the World Cup. I Absolutely. love it. I love it. No wonder you remember that so well. Yeah. And and, and you turned up at the same time. Exactly. Yes, I I did. So um I my uh I grew up in a 
would be considered middle, middle-class family, probably. Um, my father was a bush pilot. Um, he's got a very interesting background, um, but most what he did while I was growing up through my formative years in high school was uh, fly for the mine for Hudson Bay mining and smelting. And he flew uh, into these exploration camps. I remember as a kid getting to go travel with him uh, in his plane, in these beavers and otters into these flying fishing camps and was very much a part of my childhood um, flying in the small planes. So it's my first love instead of big planes. I remember the first time I got on a jet and I was like really frightened and people were like, what are you frightened of? And uh, it's not a small plane. I'm like, I'd rather be at a small one. Uh, my mom, my mother was, uh, she was a stay at home mom from the time I was born. Uh, that was her passion. A very athletic uh, woman, very involved in curling. Of course, it's a big Canadian and yeah. And golf. Lots of stone shoved down the ice. That's right. I, I mean, where we, where I grew up, you did curling. Everyone did curling, um, and then hockey and figure skating was big, and um, that, yeah, that was life in this, in this um, community. Very close to my grandparents. I had both sets of grandparents in town, and so I spent most of my childhood with my maternal grandparents. Um, we were really close. We would. I have memories of every weekend, Saturday up at my grandmother's house. I'd often sleep over Friday night. We would play bingo in the morning, have porridge with um, tea and, you know, brown sugar. She was an excellent baker. I would then, our family would all get together every Saturday. We watch hockey night in Canada and then the Tommy Hunter show. And it was, that's kind of my years. Um, I, uh, Gosh, growing up, I was a good kid. I was one of those. You just had to look look at me with the evil eye, and I would cry, and I would do as I was told. So I I remember getting spanked. I think twice over my life. I was I was one that would fall in line. So you know the typical firstborn wanting to please your parents and be a perfectionist at all that I did. And so I was a good student. I was always the top of the class, and um. I had a lot of different interests growing up. My, like I said, as my mom was very athletic and she encouraged me to try different sports. I did the everything, figure skating and swimming, piano lessons, baton, all kinds of dance. Too numerous. Cross country skiing. I, yes, we did cross country skiing. We had, um, we'd go snowmobiling. The it was really uh, fascinating. The town that we lived in was all connected. There's lakes throughout town. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to be out in their snowmobiles, kind of go down part of a road or a, a back alley lane. Every, every community seemed to have a back lane behind the houses. And yeah, we'd hop on, go down back lanes and then across a lake or a pond that was frozen over. And we could, you could get through all of town and get up to someone's house in 20 minutes on a snowmobile, um, ice fishing, was something that we did all the time and then in the summers you know we uh, we stayed we didn't travel a lot as a family um extensively we were big into camping and we took advantage of all the lakes and we pretty much went to one lake all the time called jan lake and we camped there with my grandparents and then we actually built a cottage or cabin. we built that ourselves i was in seventh grade and i remember helping pile the logs on put the insulation and we built this thing and 
we kept that up until after my mom passed in 2011, our family sold it. So we had it in the family for many years. And that's where I spent every summer, even in university years, I would come back there. And it was like a whole other life because people would come for the summer. We would stay June through September. My dad would be working, but my grandparents had a cottage next door. They built one in time. And there was a whole other uh, community of kids and people that would spend a whole summer there. So we had these other lives in the summer. Um, so that was really a big part of me growing up. And um, my childhood, I, you know, gosh, there's so many different things to talk about. But as far as, you know, the school years, um, pretty unremarkable. I would always excelled. I got A's throughout. Um, by the time I was thinking... 10, you know, I kind of declared that I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And then it was um, a curse because it stuck, you know, everybody in the family said, great, this is what you're going to be. Um, and here I am today. I'm a physician still. So I had different ideas about what I wanted to do. Um, but yeah, that, that was it. My sister and I, we weren't very close. I remember because when she was born, you know, I was seven and she just seemed to be a nuisance getting in the way of my my freedom as an only child and, and, and ruling the roost. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I ended up having to like babysit her and do drag her around town, which I didn't like. So we were, uh, we were not close and didn't get along very well. And, you know, I graduated high school when I was 17 and left home and she was only 10. So we didn't get to know each other very well then. I'll, since then we have, but during those years, not so much. Um, there was a long period of time growing up when my dad, with what he was doing, and I think it was seven or eight years in a row, was gone for about seven months at a seven to eight months of the year. So the mine, he would work for the mine, but then they started doing more exploration and development all across Canada. And so they would go to Ontario, to Eastern Canada. Um, he did some other odd jobs, but a lot of what he did was involved doing more mining exploration in the wilderness of Northern Ontario. So they would be gone flying these DC-3s and he missed, I, I'm pretty sure it was seven birthdays in a row. And he would be gone, maybe come home for a long weekend if you get one. And my mother pretty much then became, you know, uh, the only parental sort of influence I had for a long time, which um, was kind of interesting. It landed to some, you know, some negative negative dynamics there for sure. I relied a lot on my grandfather as a um, paternalistic um, influence, I would say. And then there's some, some dark periods of growing up. Um, I was uh, an avid band. I was in band, um, started in the fourth grade. My mom wanted me to play the trumpet. I don't know why. I wanted to play something else, but she said it had to be the trumpet because it's all she liked to listen to practice so it was trumpet she, anyway she was probably her balbert at the time yeah she loved her balbert we had those albums and i would listen to all that stuff yeah anyway, you're right that's funny that you mentioned that um so i did band and then um actually subsequently um became abused and sexually um abused by the band teacher for three over three years and there was other students, other uh, girls as well. And it was this thing that went on for over three years and didn't come to light until one of my close friends 
um, her dad was the superintendent of the schools and she sort of figured out what was happening because of the group of girls and friends that kind of shared secrets. And she told her dad and I share all this because um, it really did affect then the next period of my life in the junior high and high school years, as far as um, my, I started to have a fear of boys. I didn't really want any big relationship with um, men or boys. I was afraid to have a boyfriend. I um, developed an eating disorder. Uh, I became anorexic in high school and then bulimic in college years and just struggled with a lot of um, bad um, behaviors and reaching out and so forth. So that part of my childhood uh, is a big, sort of a big black hole that I've dealt with and really worked through um, as a young adult and just before actually Tim and I got to know each other in medical school, but um, really pay, played a sort of a dark role in part of it and was dealt with really, I would say not even really dealt with by my parents, but it was the way they handled things back then. And we had the talk with the superintendent and I sort of told the story of what happened and we talked about it that one day at our family home. And he said, well, this teacher will be, you know, laid off. The person I think got early retirement. There was no formal charges or case or anything. It was just kind of let go. And I saw this person in town for the rest of my life and my parents never spoke of it again to me. It was one of those things. So um, yeah, that was, uh, it that was um, a dark part, and th then to brought on all this stuff with um, depression, some suicidal thoughts in high school. I was still a high achieving kid; was like the top of the class. Um, graduated with scholarships and got into um, university right away when I was seventeen and left home. And then I actually got into medical school at the age of nineteen. I'm um, still struggling with my anorexia and bulimia um, and what I wanted to do with my life because I wasn't, I didn't want to, I had all these other thoughts. I wanted to travel or maybe be a pilot. I didn't know, but felt all these pressures, you know, from childhood. And long story short, um, went through some intensive counseling and program, outpatient programs and be discovered a group of friends that were really strong Christians and um, then devoted my life to the Lord and became a Christian and be got healing of all of that um, through um, accepting Jesus into my life and forgiveness. The, the big story, or the big, I should say, um, the, the big healing moment for me was just learning how to, to let go and to be able to forgive that person for what had happened. Um, and that allowed me to heal as a person and get on with leaving that part of my life behind so that it doesn't uh, affect who I am as a person now. I mean, it influenced and shaped me, but I don't hold any feelings, thoughts, grudges. My eating disorder is completely cured. I'm a whole healthy person. and um, But yeah, it was a really dark time. So uh, if you pull that piece out, I mean, I had, I had a, the rest of the childhood like was fun, filled with great memories of growing up, good friends. Um, I I worked as a lifeguard as my first job in high school. I was a swim instructor, taught swimming lessons. Really loved that. Um, was a great swimmer, 
and um, had a lot of interests. And, and that's my story. I could, I guess, there's yeah. so much more to tell. But I mean, how many hours well, do we have? Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we we just take our time. There's no time limit. I have a question. You, you said earlier that you you saw this um, teacher carry on uh, around the town. Did you ever uh, later on approach him and and say to him that he did wrong at the time? Did you have the opportunity to to call him out on it uh, and explain to him later on what he had done? I no, I did not. I saw. I remember going back um, in the summers of the university of my university years while I was working a little bit, and I remember one time. And that would have been 18 or 19 at the time, probably 19, saw him walking down the street. And um, at that point, I wasn't in a state of mind or in a place where I could approach him. I was one of those kids that didn't like conflict, and especially by authority. And I still hadn't even worked through what had happened. So I saw that I saw him and I, all I wanted to, I ran literally to the opposite side of the street, deked into some store and and I didn't want to be seen. I was still afraid. I was still under the the fear that he could still hurt me or have influence. So, no. And then afterwards, um, I never again saw or sort of heard where he was at living. He might have moved away, but I never ran into him again. So I did not have the opportunity. Nor did I hear from any anyone else ever that that, that they did. Well, thank you for that part. That's that's been interesting, and I, I guess nowadays being able to destigmatize that sort of thing uh, and bring it out in the open, and and able to talk about that sort of abuse uh, and to normalize it to to make it not acceptable um, is really important and and needs emphasizing. And being part of a normal conversation, that that sort of behaviour is totally, totally unacceptable now. I know what has been. Right. No, absolutely. People need to have that conversation. Yeah. And yeah. If I was going to. Are experiencing I, it, then they need to speak out. Absolutely. You know, and I was. I didn't get to the part where um, years later, when my grandmother died, and we were all back home for her funeral, my maternal grandmother something came up and I can't remember how it came up um, where I was talking to my mother about what had happened to me and that, that whole part period of my life. Um, and it came out that she told me that she had been abused in some way um, by a cousin that had babysat her. And she said, this happened to me as well. And my parents, they didn't, you know, all they did was said, I'm sorry this happened and the cousin won't be around and they never spoke of it again. And she said, that's how we handled things back then. We just thought, you know, you just didn't talk about it and God, you would get over it and you just be strong and get on with it. And so it, at that point, the light bulb kind of went off for me that, wow, that was how she was taught to, to deal with it. She didn't know any better. If, and and that was the way things were done back then was just you yeah. you, you internalize or you bottle it up and yeah. sweep it under the rug you don't talk about it um 
And so I share a lot now just about it because it's part of who I am and it's all this, what I've gone through has really um, played a role in where I'm at today. But to also, yeah, I think it's important for people to, to be able to be aware that it's important to share. The only way through healing is to work through that. And um, unfortunately is way too common, but not to, to have to hide it. And so I think that by helping, it gives people hope that, um, you can work through that and you can have a successful life and, and work through all the issues that it brings. So, And, and you shouldn't have to go through that in the first place. Correct. Uh, and exactly. I think that's, that's what really wants to, to, to be brought to the fore. Is, is, it's totally unacceptable and it should happen. And if, it, if there's any inkling of it starting, then people need to speak up. And that's the message that... that we should be pushing out. Everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, let's um, let's turn our attentions to young Tim. There, he's been sat there very, very patiently. So, Tim, you can tell us uh, when and where you were born, and if you can describe to us what it was like where you grew up, and the schools and the education that you received. Yeah. So. <clears throat> So interestingly, I, I was born actually in the city that May and I met uh, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is kind of in the middle of Canada, um, you know, the prairies. And, um, you know, the city was, I don't know, 150,000 people or so back then. It's about three, 300,000 now. Um, and, you know, so very agrarian. It was kind of the commercial center for large farming community. My father was a family physician. He was incredibly connected to the community. He was on the public school board for 25 years. He, um, you know, was very involved in our church and all of this. But unlike May, I was not the high achieving firstborn. (laughs) I was the entertainment center last born child of four. And all my siblings are much older than me. My brother is almost 13 years older than me. My one sister's 10 years older than me and my other sister's seven years older than me. So I was basically the worst case scenario from a <laughs> child rearing perspective. I was the last born and an only child at the same time, born to parents that were just about 40 years old. So uh, apparently they went to the New York World's Fair in 1964 and nine months later I was born. So everyone, you know, the the, the family joke was I was actually in New York. <laughs> Uh, even though I never actually physically went to New York until 2013. So, so they just didn't call you Brooklyn or anything like no, that? No, no. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Or, you know, Bridge Rat Queens. or something like that. <laughs> Subway token. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's interesting because – so uh, I was actually quite a good kid until uh, some of my rebellious teenage years. I mean, Saskatoon was an interesting city to grow up in. I had really good friends. I still have a lot of friends that – we haven't lived anywhere near each other for 30, 40 years, and we still get together every year or two. Um, it's it's an interesting place, though, because there's not a lot to do. I mean, there's no lakes there. There is a river, but it's not really recreation material. Um, there's no mountains for it's you know, prairie. 400 miles. So you, you kind of had to make your own fun. And we did a tremendous amount of that, uh, you know, um, taking all the doors off of our, our cars and driving around with no doors on driving through schoolyard parks, you know, stuff like that as teenagers, just because, you know, you were kind of bored. 
Um, we got, I got into a lot of automotive stuff. So I was building cars and riding motorcycles and stuff like that from when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old. And that's stuck with me to the point now where we're trying to move across the country. And the first thing we buy is a garage because that's way more important <laughs> than a house. So, um, to keep all the motorbikes in. Yeah. Ex it, well, exactly. And so, so my, my upbringing itself was really, was really good by, you know, sort of any objective standard I think you could come up with. You know, we were upper middle class. My father was really well respected. Uh, that put a fair bit of pressure on us as kids to like kind of not tarnish the image of the family name, um, which somehow miraculously we, we didn't. I always like to comment, you know, my, um, my brother was the captain of the Bible quiz team in youth group and I got kicked out of the youth group. That was kind of the difference in <laughs> generations. Um, and so, uh, you know, so the education itself, I think was really good. Um, uh, you know, through up, up through high school, um, no problem. Uh, it was a smaller city. Um, we were really well connected to, uh, you know, like, you know, what we got taught, uh, teachers were really open. Um, there was a lot of self-discipline as well as discipline in school. You know, you'd get kicked out of school if you were misbehaving. So, you know, kids were there largely to learn, which I think made a huge difference. Um, and, uh, you know, so from that perspective, I think that that was really good. I was a very average student, just not because I was of average intelligence, I think, but just because I didn't care. Um, it didn't really mean anything to me. I knew I was going to get into university and I knew that if I wanted to pursue medicine like the other folks in my family, then I would have to work at some point, which was a huge transition coming out of high school because, I mean, May was always the number one student and I never you know, figured out how to study. And then, you know, when I did it, everything changed. Um, I actually started running when I was 19 years old and that was a massive, um, like game changer. It allowed me to really focus and concentrate. And I put in all this physical discipline, uh, from all the different sports I like to do. And, um, that really allowed me to perform academically. Um, and, and then, you know, actually kind of pursue what I've wanted to pursue. And, uh, so from that perspective, you know, it was, there was nothing too dramatic, you know, nothing like what, what happened to me. Thank, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, um, <laughs> I, I have no idea how that would have been dealt with probably the exact same way. I mean, this idea of talking about your feelings, I, I have a real, I mean, personally with regards to a lot of, I mean, tr trauma is real and it does need to be dealt with, but at the same time, I think there is a balance where it, you don't celebrate it either. You know, yeah. um, I, I, I would get into some discussions with, you know, um, other men in like men's group or whatever at church. And people would be like, what's, you know, talking about their woundedness or this and that. And I said, you know, I think there's a place for it. But I don't I mean, I don't think that the 19 year olds that stormed up the beaches of Normandy did that because they talked about how their mother had hurt them when they were six. <laughs> so it's a generational thing i guess yeah i guess i mean i i just think that there's a bad i mean the thing that's interesting is you, you know with like what happened to may you absolutely 100 want that to you know not be acceptable and yeah. for kids to feel safe enough that's what it's about it's about safety to be able to confront the problem and then maybe when we know you can confront the problem it happens less often etc cetera, etc cetera. but at the same time i think sometimes we get you know we can get preoccupied with 
you know, navel gazing. I know I, I, that's where I go off the rails. Sometimes I just get so stuck in your own head. And sometimes you just got to wake up and go, it's not about you. Just got to put your big boy pants on and go to work. So let's just drag you back a little bit. Um, Going through school then, so you you weren't top of the class, you sort of didn't see uh, the academic side as as that important until, I guess, a bit later. So what was your favourite subject, the one that you you couldn't wait to to get up and go to school for? Um, Well, it would be... It was still the sciences. You know, I had a really excellent physics teacher in 11th grade. And, um, you know, I did terrible in physics in university, but he, he made it really super interesting. Um, you know, all, all of the sciences uh, had some really amazing chemistry teachers. Uh, that stuff actually helped me out a lot in the first, because, you know, the first, the 100 level classes in university are essentially a, a rapid review of high school all done in you know, a year. And so that, you know, it was clearly the sciences. I, I had no, I had no real mega interest in English or anything, but honestly, probably if I would have not gone into medicine, I would have become a history teacher because, um, you know, the interest that I got through that, you know, in high school and then after high school and where I am now, as far as what I find, the most captivating is really kind of going through history and, um, you know, unpacking a lot of, you know, why did this happen and what can we learn from it? And so that's probably really my, my favorite. And again, you know, 11th grade was really the year and we had just an absolutely phenomenal 11th grade history teacher. Um, 12th grade history was pretty boring because it's Canadian history, which is not very exciting. There wasn't a lot of wars. There wasn't people chopping. You know, you guys got all the guys chopping heads off because they wanted a different wife. You know, we got a guy that got drunk once in a while, you know. <laughs> so, so history then, what is your favorite period in history to, uh, to study? Oh, I think, I think the early 20th century is for me right now. I've become really pretty obsessed with World War One. I. I think World War One is is sets the stage for absolutely everything that happened after it. It's not World War Two. If there was no World War One, there wouldn't be World War Two. Um, if there was not World War Two, there you know there wouldn't be the rocket technology we have. There wouldn't be the computer technology that we have. But it all it all steps back for me as far as what we're dealing with in the world now. Like whether you want to talk about you know economic issues. Uh, the Middle East stuff that's gone on, uh, even how COVID has been dealt with, that is all from World War One. And most people don't even know that World War One existed, let alone that that it is this yeah. most formative four years in the last probably two hundred. I mean, I, I I mean, I think unquestionably World War One has way more to do with how the world works than anything preceding and really anything since then. It set the stage for everything, you know, the United Nations, like just go, like, I mean, I could rattle on and on and on for about this. That I find it so unbelievably fascinating. And plus it's forgotten. Like, I just can't get over that. I mean, you know, nobody, nobody even knew about the 1918. I used to talk to patients about 1918 flu uh, pandemic and how devastating it was. And nobody even really thought twice about it until two years ago. And I'm like, no, you don't understand that killed more people than World War One, And it happened at the same time. 
I have a personal interest in um, World War II, especially the Holocaust and what happened um, in the concentration camps. I read a lot of fiction, but also nonfiction stories um, of people that were survivors from there. And I gravitate to those. I think because when I was, I was in the travel club, um, that was the other fun thing in my childhood. We had this amazing travel club put on by our history teacher and he would actually take high school students to Europe. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine doing that now, but uh, there'd be like a couple parent volunteers, but there was a group of like 20, 25 of us. And so when I was in um, uh, 10th grade, I went to Germany, Austria, Switzerland, but I actually got to walk through uh, Dachau and um Wow. It, it's I, it's creepy because I can even just feel like I can transport myself there again now. That memory will never uh, leave me. But, but I think what I find fascinating about it, you know, Tim's fascinated with World War One, but for me, the stories from World War Two is two things, the both extremes, how people and humanity could be duped and go along with the acts of horror that they did. I mean, there's true evil people. And then how just people that normally wouldn't think of doing such things got in line and did what they were told in the name of just following orders. Um, Or just follow the science. Yes. Which we could parallel to things going on today, but the also from the people from the Jews and the people in the concentration camp, the resilience and the, faith and the strength and the hope and the toughness and the what these people did to to keep living and you know just standing up for what they believed in and helping one another and how that's the survivors that did make it just um i get inspiration from from that um as and i wish we could you know just get more of those stories but it was horrible what they went through but it just is amazing to me their strength and fortitude so that's a part of history I like. Well, funny you should say that. There's one of my favourite books uh, is a film as well, but the film only depicts the first half of the book pretty much. But the book itself um, depicts a, a sergeant major in the Royal Artillery called um, um, Charlie, Charlie, Howard, uh, Charlie Coward. And he... In the second part of the war, he got captured, escaped a few times, and ended up working in a work camp not far from Auschwitz. And he he managed to free or help escape a lot of a lot of Jews. Um, and it's a, it's a fantastic read. Uh, the, it's called "The Password Is Courage" by John Castle. Hmm, I haven't read and, that. And and the film is called "The Password Is Courage," and it's Dirk Bogart stars in it. Okay. Charlie Coward. And uh, it's a really, really good film and a really good book. It's just a shame that the book didn't depict the second half of the book because the part where he was freeing um, Jews from the, the concentration camps at Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I've I, I read an awful lot of escape books. I used to collect first first edition escape books uh, and I used to have a big collection years ago but I haven't got it any longer wow um, but there you go that's and that's what you, you get from history you learn from it and there's so many people nowadays trying to change history which you can't do you can't change history 
you can make it, but you can't change it. And they don't get that. But there you go. So coming back to Tim then. <laughs> so what was the worst subject that you did at school? Which, which one did you want to play hooky for? Which one didn't you want to get up in the morning for? Well, uh, it would be either English or math. I was not very good. It's 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 weird because I, I mean I could memorize lists of stuff and you know I I had a degree in anatomy before I went into medicine and so I mean I could endless lists of whatever but I was like math was not intuitive to me and I know it was to me you know and now we have a son who's going to be graduating aerospace engineering here in about four months and I'm like that's all he does is math he goes well it's really easy and I'm like no not for me <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah. I, I, so that, that's definitely, that would definitely be. It makes sense because I think of when the kids were growing up and you know how they have the, the homework. Well, mm. it's off, if there's two parents, sometimes you'll, they divvy up the homework. Well, we did it by, he would say, I am not doing math. I hate math. I can't help them with math. And I'm like, perfect. That's my thing. I'll take care of the math. And then the writing the essays, oh, that was, he was so, he was good at that. I'm like, you you can free associate anything. Just go ahead and help with writing these. You know, it's so funny. Our daughter had to write a had to write an argument about a su Supreme Court case for for a university, and so she called me, and I I was actually out for a walk at lunch at work, and I just said, okay, look up this case, and then look up this case. This is the years <laughs> that the cases started. This is the precedence <laughs> that they set. This is Done. how they, and, and, and she's, so she, she's just like literally taking notes and she comes back. She goes, yeah, I did really well. I got an A on that paper. And I'm like, well. Brilliant. So the next thing is you, you obviously graduated high school and you went to university and that's where you guys met. So was it like the old, love at first sight or was it um something sort of slow burning that, that took a bit of time to work on oh boy you've opened a can now <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think it was an overnight success in in about two years um you know when you talk to guys about businesses and how they push the rock up the hill forever and all of a sudden they're super popular in like two months and um it, it was interesting because I had really no idea kind of what May's feelings really were for me, but we were really good friends. And so we just did a lot of stuff together and we're just friends. And then I finally clued in that um, I should probably not lose this one because she's like, I'm marrying so far over my head. I need an oxygen mask. So, <laughs> so it really started with friendship, but uh, she can fill you in on the details of actually, she actually pursued me, believe it or not. Yeah. I, so from my perspective and point of view, we, um, we met obviously in medical school class. I was actually, it's a long story, but I was in a different class um, ahead of Tim a couple of years, uh, had a series of, uh, well, I had an accident where I tore my ACL playing girls football. Uh, it was like a med school girls team versus these really tough agricultural, the agros we call them, and they were beasts. And they, I got, I got blow, my knee blown up playing football in college. There you go. Um, and is to it, the yeah, point, gridiron football, football, not American football. Yes, yes, throwing. It was supposed to be 
flag where you had this little flag in your pocket and they're yeah, such a yeah. pull the flag but no it was all tackle it was but but it was awesome because that medical school team had an olympic athlete sprinter on yeah, the we, team which we did. was awesome didn't help my knee though but anyway so in <laughs> fall of this one year um that happened had the acl injury i wasn't doing very well in school i was still struggling with my uh, bulimia and depression my grades were going down and i really was questioning whether i wanted to really be a doctor or not and so i uh dropped out or took a leave they said you're you know you can think about it you're free to come back so the second half of the year i was out and then mm. um got help in the summer went to that counseling figured out my knee situation long story when i did come back into medicine the following year i was in tim's class so that's how we got to be um friends and we mostly sat beside each other in lectures uh, that's how it started. And then we started chatting and became friends and had common interests. And we did rock climbing together. And um, over time, short amount of time, I started to really become a, fa a fond of him. And um, I, he, we, you know, we were just collegial friends, but I started to have more feelings for him. And um, I knew he didn't feel the same way back. So it was really difficult. And what happened was this fun little story about how I courted him. Um, and this is how it goes. We had these little groups of five or six students that would do these rotations in clinical medicine. And we would go out to um, the first couple of years, like to hospital or we, I was with a group that was going to a children's um, special ed school, uh, et cetera. And we would, uh, go out and I was out on a rotation with some, uh, my colleagues and we'd see Tim's vehicle parked or he parked to go to university. And so I said, Oh, we should play a trick on, on Tim. There's this vehicle and they just never thought about it. And so I wrote this note and it was an anonymous note about someone who was following him. And I put it on his vehicle and we, I did this a few times and then we would come back to the common lounge at lunchtime where all the med students, um, met and there was only 60 of us in our class it was a small medical school class so you know we get together in groups and I remember him sitting there going I'm getting these anonymous notes on my vehicle and every you know every few days I'd put a new one and he's like these are really weird and someone says they're stalking me and and then they say that they like me and he's trying to figure they're trying to figure out the puzzle him and some other friends so then I thought oh this is kind of fun and I carried it a little further and I then put some notes in his locker so we had lockers where we kept all of our stuff and i started to write these uh kind of love notes and with little hints about me and my past uh but things that he didn't really know there was these unknown things that were clues and so I, I made these rhyming poems and i was planning on carrying this on until valentine's day and then i thought oh, i'll just tell him then if i get up the courage so we would sit around as he found these notes and he'd bring them into the, he's like, yeah, I got another one. And then it'd be a group of six or eight of us. We'd sit down and I'd disguise my handwriting and we would joke about who it was. Well, anyway, um, I tried to keep that going, but what happened was, was we ended up going out to a, a church concert or something right before a week before Valentine's day. And that's when he said, I think I figured out who this person is. I think it's you. And then I'm like, okay, well, now you know that I'm like massively in love with you. <laughs> so are the feelings <laughs> reciprocal or not? Because I'm totally embarrassed if not. 
Um, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I think you're okay. So we officially started dating Valentine's Day of that year. And uh, a year later, we got engaged. Yeah, we got engaged on February the 13th because February the 14th would be too obvious. So yeah, we had a we had a quick whirlwind romance over one year, which while you're in medical school is kind of difficult. But um, also, you know, it's a time when you're going through intense stuff as med students. Oh, and we, you know, we got to experience a lot in our program. I mean, obviously, you're dealing. We get to see life and death as med students, and you're going through like the depths of humanity and emotions of that, and you're growing up really quick and you're with this group of, you know, 60 people, actually even less so as you form little smaller groups of friends that you're really close with. And so you become really connected and you rely on them for a lot of emotional support, studying support. So we do form really close bonds quickly in those situations, which is not unusual. And anyway, we, um, yeah, got engaged a year later and honestly what happened then was we got engaged and it was at the final year of med school so what happens is when you finish medicine and you graduate med school then you go on to your they've changed it you go right into residency programs now pretty much but it was internship year and residency and in canada the u.s a lot of places they have what's called the uh, match system because you can choose where you would like to do your your specialty training your internship or specialty training and you can go for your interviews um, and the program might pick you, but not someone else, you know? So what happens is they have a couples match. So if there's a married couple in medicine or a couple that wants to be guaranteed that they're in the same place, you could enter the couples match, meaning they have to, whatever program we're in, they have to accept both of us or none of us. So we were, we were at a junction. I said, you know, if we don't decide what we're doing together with our lives, if we're not, sure we're going to have this relationship go further i mean once we apply for a residency we could end up in two different places across the country and long distance relationship is going to be very difficult so we have to decide are we going to enter the couples match together and if we are why don't we just get married <laughs> so that was my way of saying just propose darn it um <laughs> so he did did he get down on one knee and do it properly he did. So he was acting all weird. I figured he, he was going to ask me to marry him on Valentine's. And then he asked, started asking weird things like, we haven't gone rock climbing in a long time. I think we should go rock climbing. And I'm like, I would say, why are you going to go hide a ring, you know, in one of the handholds? And he's like, oh, how come I can't surprise you? You know, so anyway, <laughs> we went to get our graduation photos taken from medicine. And he was it was bizarre because he came to pick me up. We were going to both get our picture done the same time. And I thought he seems cranky or something's going on. He's just really irritable and he's not really fun to be around. And I, I, I'm like, I don't know what's bothering him. So while I got my set down and I'm getting my picture taken and with my robe and the books and I'm sitting there and smiling and the girl's taking my picture I, you know, Tim said, well, if she's going to be sitting in the photo holding these books and you can see her hands, maybe she should be wearing this. And then he got down on one knee and proposed and slipped on my engagement ring. And then there was actual photos taken of the proposal. And 
as Tim says, I started to make walrus or harp seal sounds and started crying and <laughs> gasping. And, and so, yes, I said yes. And then he smiled and was in a good mood while he got his photos taken. <laughs> um, and then we, we decided, okay, uh, let's, let's get married uh, sooner than later. So we actually, um, oh gosh, this is funny. So he proposed and then I had to get my ACL fixed. I hadn't had that fixed yet. Um, and I had one month of a vacation time left and I, it was the end of, it was like May and I, uh, April, I can't remember. It was close to in there. I went in hospital. They kept, it was back in the day when they kept you in hospital for a week for these ACL surgeries. I'm not kidding. Like now they're, you're in and out. It's day surgery. They do it. You, they send you home. Well, they have me in a hospital for a week. So I planned our wedding from my hospital bed for a week. And then I had like three weeks of recovery and I did an easy rotation. And so we planned our wedding and got married within three months. We thought we'll get married before, right after we um, graduate med school which we did. We graduated on a Thursday in May, got married on a Sunday so that all our friends could be there. And then we had a two week break where we took our honeymoon before we started our residency and we moved away. So there, there's the courtship, the engagement, the graduation, all that. Yeah. <laughs> so you managed to get the, the same, um, the same residency. Yes. Yeah, so we did, we ranked, uh, we had a really good um, program where we went to medical school, uh, really well-known throughout Canada. We went to, and interviewed four different places, and we ranked, uh, in, we were in Western Canada that we were mostly interested in staying, and we ranked our places. And our top choice was Edmonton at the University of Alberta, and they ranked us number one. Oh, so we got, got our first choice in family practice, um, and that's where we went we moved to Edmonton and spent two years there doing our family practice residency so how so once you finish that that qualifies you to be what GPs and or did you specialize then uh, what, what happened next well, okay, so we go we go through residency, which in and of itself is a whole other story because we're working, <laughs> you know, 36-hour shifts and trying to figure out how to be married. You know, partway through that, May's sister comes and lives with us for a while, which we thought would be, you know, somebody to help out, help with the bills. That ended up being a major challenge in and of itself for a whole bunch of reasons. And Yeah, six months. We were only married six months, and then my family, my parents asked if she could move in because she was going through her own things. Yeah. Um, so that was, so that, that was, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of, you're kind of in a two year survival mode. Um, you know, family practice residencies in this, in the United States now are three years. So ours was a little bit shorter. Um, and it, so we, we got that done and about, oh man, six months before we were finished, the phone rings and it's this random recruiter, like just cold calling us. And he's like, do you want to move to the United States? And we're like, well, I don't know. Not really. I kind of had a job lined up um, for for both of us. But I probably drove the bus on this one. Geography was critically important to where I wanted to live. Because I grew up on the prairies and I was, you know, I lived in Whistler. I took a year off between undergrad and medical school and I skied 100 days that year. And I wanted to be around uh, 
you know, water and mountains. Like that was, that was it. So this guy calls us and says, do you want to come to the United States? I'd say, if you can put me within two hours of the Columbia Gorge and two hours of mountains, then sure. Otherwise forget it. I, you know, I'll pursue our opportunity we have in British Columbia. So the guy calls us back and he says, you know, do you want to go to this, you know, check this place out? And we're like, yeah, okay, well, you know, we'll come down. We had no idea where any of this was. We'd never been there. We'd never, I'd, we'd vacationed quite a bit in, in Oregon, in the Columbia Gorge with windsurfing. Cause I was just completely maniacal with regards to the sport. And uh, we come down here into the Willamette Valley, which is a gorgeous place. And we're like, Oh, it seems like a pretty good deal. Seems like a good group. Um, kind of, you know, hour and a half from the Pacific Ocean, a couple hours from the Columbia Gorge, hour and a half from, you know, skiing. Yeah, let's let's give it a go. And that's been 28 years. So it it worked out uh, quite well. Uh, it was a great place to raise a family. Uh, was able to do tons of action sports, which I was into. Um, you know, dirt bike riding. Uh, barefoot water skiing, skydiving, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so that was, that was kind of how we ended up here. Um, you know, what's gone on in the last 28 years again is another entire story. So, <laughs> so, so, so you've been, are you in general practice or have you specialized or, 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 or bring us up to sort of date of, of, brush over the 28 years to, to get to where you are now then? Well, when we started off, so our residency training was, yes, in family practice, which is like general medicine, birth to death. You can do um, obstetrics and pediatrics. Uh, we, well, we both got obviously trained in that all the way through to taking care of geriatrics, nursing home. Um, ho we did hospital medicine etc. So when we moved down here and started working, um, my uh, choice was to work part-time and I was still figuring out whether I wanted to do this as a career or not, still struggling with medicine. But uh, so I worked part-time and I did choose not to do a, an OB practice in family practice because um, I liked sleep too much. Um, I had struggled with in um, med school, I had mono really severely for uh, eight months, and it, it affected my immune system a lot, a chronic, I wouldn't call it chronic fatigue, but I had EBV virus stuff for many years. And so I really needed my eight to nine hours to 10 hours of sleep. So I, as much as I loved it, I chose not to do uh, obstetrics. And Tim's had a full, he did obstetrics as well as a full practice. Uh, we both did nursing home patients, at the time, we took care of our own patients and, and call group. So we are on different call schedules because I worked in a clinic uh, in another town from him. And we um, were on separate call schedules. So we would do ICU call, take care of our, and round on our own group of patients, call um, on the weekends and at night on different schedules. And so that was really erratic. We, you know, the first five years and we didn't have kids he'd be on call for OB one night and I'd be on hospital call for our group another. And then he'd be on regular hospital patient call. And it was, you know, very busy. Um, and then with time, 
I changed practices a lot um, for various reasons, but I, I ended up joining um, the, the building and the group of people that Tim was at and helped um, do family practice over there for a while. Uh, I bumped around and would also do some locums within our massive hospital group and would help fill in other physicians' practices. Um, we had Once we had children, I kind of took some time off. I even actually played his nurse for a while. His nurse quit suddenly. She gave her two weeks' notice, and we were kind of in between kids. Our daughter was just a few months old, and I said, well, I'll find a babysitter for her, and I'll come in, and I'll be your nurse since, you know, I think I can do most of it. I can give the injections. And then, you know, if you're off doing a delivery, I will just take care of patients if need be. I can do all the prescriptions. So that lasted 10 months. And then I'm like, I've, I've had enough of taking orders from you. <laughs> they can find another <laughs> nurse. Uh, plus, they only paid me starting nurse wages. So it was quite demoralizing to not to not have a higher salary. So uh, I'm, and I went back and actually worked as a physician again. We did that, gosh, for, I'm trying to think, up until 2010, um, I pulled the plug on family practice and switched over to started doing urgent care practice. So things had changed so much. That was kind of chronic medicine and I missed the acute things like lacerations, broken bones. I mean, we just couldn't work those in anymore into a regular practice. And I missed seeing the really sick people, which is we had a lot of training. And so I did urgent care starting in 2010. And Tim um, did from 2013. But we've done everything. We know we initially started, we did, we were the um, coroners, we would go on death, do death investigations. Um, what else can you think of? Yeah, no, I mean, <clears throat> If anyone has watched Call the Midwife, that we were Dr. Turner. I mean, yeah. it was it was exactly that kind of cradle. House calls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we didn't I don't you never delivered a baby in a house, but close. Mm, come really close. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Call the mid we love that show, Call the Midwife, but pretty mm. much we it was old style medicine when we started. And it's changed dramatically now since you know it's big corporations. Um and we did urgent care until the last couple of years. And now we've actually gone back to our roots. We have us, uh, we live in a small town of about 11,000. And one of our former um, residents that we helped train has started a little practice here in town. And we're, we've been helping him start it up and get it going. And that's how we're kind of looking at fading into the retirement years, so to speak. Oh. So what does retirement uh, hold for you guys then? Um, are, are you obviously still fairly fit? Are you going to be able to, to sort of take up around a round of golf, get your golf bats out, or are you going to go windsurfing and, and, and skiing in the winter? Or are you just going to sort of, what are you going to do? Um, well, again, it depends on how you define retirement. Uh, I think... I think either of us could stay and see patients for a bit longer, but we would both like to, I know, I know I would, I speak for myself, just kind of retire from actual medical practice. Um, we have a podcast. We love doing that. The people we've met in the last two years of that podcast has been absolutely awe inspiring. 
Um, it's been very encouraging to us as far as, you know, there's other things that we can do. We can use our experience and our training in less traditional ways. Um, uh, yes, there'll be lots of activities. I will golf. Yes, I will. Um, I've switched. I'm, I'm slowly starting to switch over from windsurfing to kiting because it's a little easier to transport that stuff and it's not as hard on your body. And I would try to ski until honestly, I'm in a wheelchair. Um, that is get it and I ride a motorcycle, you know, I mean, I do a lot of, I ride about 5,000 miles a year. So from well, a recreation perspective, I think I have that part covered. We just have to figure out how to continue to finance it. And uh, I think then the next two years, really what the plan is our house is for sale. And if, if uh, that goes well, we'll work a little bit and get in a motorhome and just drive across the country until we get bored of that. Yeah, what what we didn't really touch on in our story is the big part of our lives have been activity focused, and uh, I think Tim's theme has always been um, work to support your hobbies and activities, and he's been a high sensation seeking. Um, activities director of our household and I have gotten dragged into, I say dragged into the loop. I would try anything and usually be the one to get hurt. Um, but, oh, he, you know, we, we've done all kinds of things and I think we both love being active and we'll probably go out trying and dying hard. We won't give up. Um, so we'll, we do what we can as we, as we get older and injured and, you know, arthritis and our limitations happen, but um, give us something to do and we'll be out there having fun doing it. And we love podcasting. And so we plan to just stay pretty active for sure. Well, I can recommend retirement and there's a few things I can recommend is, is one plan for your retirement. Uh, so you've got enough money to, to be out to scrape by. <laughs> right. Live every day as though it's your last because one day it will be. And the last thing you want to do is turn up at the pearly gates with a, an unused body and a load of regrets. When I get there, it's going to be an absolutely wreck. <laughs> no regrets. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I checked that box, the last one, the used up body. But yes, good points. Man, true, I, I used to never get injured. Like, you know, I ran 12 marathons in my 30s and early. I mean, when did I finish running marathons? I don't know early forties, you know, 600 skydives. I went over the handlebars of motorcycles more times than I could count on and on and on. And, and, and then, and then, man, I, the first injury I got, it's just like, it, it's like it never stopped after that. You know? So what motorbike do you have? Uh, I have, I have two. Um, I have a, uh, a KTM 790 Duke, which is a Nick, it's called a naked sport bike. I'm a big naked yep. sport bike fan. That is a easy, one of the easiest, most fun bikes in the world to ride. And then I have a 2016 Softail Slim S uh, Harley, which I have made fit me properly. And I can ride that bike for eight 800 miles out of go if I had to. It's just mm. super comfortable and has lots of power. And we ride that across the country at least once a year. So mm. well, I've got a, a 1200 Multistrada Decay. Okay. And yep. I love it to bits. Uh, yeah. I did. Went out on Saturday. I went. I, I drove uh, 170 miles to just to watch a game of rugby, and 170 miles back to get onto a podcast. 
Wow. You're a hardcore guy too, then. Yeah, people don't get it. And like to try to describe it is, I I, I mean, I really, I mean, I've I've thought of doing aviation stuff. Our our son is very interested in that. And, but I'm like, I don't know. I got enough stuff to do. And I just, I like riding so much. You know, you you start to realize that there's certain things you can't really dabble in. If you're going to do them, you really got to do them well. Um, And, you know, I'd skydived a lot. in previous years, but once I realized, you know, I'm not going enough times, then I just said, you know, I can retire from the sport. If I want to get back into it, it's easy to get back into, but you know, you got to stay current and it's the same with riding. I mean, these people rode dirt bikes when they're 12 and they're going to, you know, they buy Harleys when they're 55 and I'm like, dude, take a course. (laughs) I've been riding motorbikes since I was um, 10. Yeah. And I've had bikes all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, for lots of miles on my bikes. Done a lot of skiing as well. I'm a, a telemark skier. Um, oh, okay. I used to, I used to do Nordic as well. Um, I was a Nordic um, instructor, um, but telemark I've I've raced, and uh, I was on the first army telemark team that took on the navy. Um, so, and uh, I've, I've taken part in the British telemark championships or a couple of dozen times over the years. Awesome. So, yeah, Good for you. Forward. I mean, telemark skiing. If you if you've got the knees for it, in mine. Oh, it's yeah. It's a lot kinder on the knees and and than alpine skiing. Um, oh, that's true. It's a little bit tougher <laughs> on the thighs. Yeah, I'll give you that one. But it's, a, it's just a different technique. It's just a different turning technique, and when you get as graceful as I, um, it just makes the the alpine skiers look at you uh, green with envy. <laughs> no and, and the ability to ski tour and just take your skins off and you're you're going you're not converting yeah. all this equipment and et cetera, et cetera. yeah, yeah. no i've, I've absolutely backcountry skiing you've got i love it he's got telemark touring we used to call it yeah. and it's great the army have a different way of doing it obviously and uh, <laughs> the skis they give you or they're, they're the pusses planks we used to call them and um and they give you a big pork or, or a big burger to, to, to carry at the same time. They take the fun out of it. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's work. Then I've, That'd be not, a good motto. Yeah. Army, we take the fun out of everything. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's where you guys are. So what is your podcast about? Well, I'll take that to start with. Um, it's called BS Free MD, and it is, uh, I think, aptly named. Um, we... I, I did a lot of leadership throughout my career, um, you know, worked, did some insurance company work um, for the insurance companies that the system we worked for owned. Uh, ex- so I saw a lot of stuff that I started to scratch my head about and go, okay, like, what the heck? How come every single thing that we do that has to do with medical practice quality ends up with a prescription? Hmm, where did that come from? You know, how come every government dictat seems to protect pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and not necessarily the patient. Hmm. So I, I had been obnoxiously irritating in a lot of meetings with regards to kind of where the evolution of healthcare, so to speak, was going. Um, and then COVID hit and started to rip the scab off of the whole world, in my opinion. Um, and 
so we started doing uh, Facebook live streams in March of 2020 because we had people like killing our inbox with questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were uh, off work for a couple of weeks because of the pandemic. And so we're like, okay, well, we'll just start answering questions. People can write in and we'll give you the best you know, answers that we can based on, you know, history and et cetera, et cetera. And then as uh, the pandemic evolved, as things started to show themselves, we're like, there's a lot more here than I think we're being told. So we started the podcast, which we wanted to do anyways, um, in uh, January of 2021. And the people that we have met and the rabbit holes we've gone down have been just absolutely amazing. I mean, uh, we hit on the fentanyl crisis. We interviewed a family who lost the child to an accidental fentanyl overdose. We interviewed a guy who infiltrated the Chinese fentanyl drug labs and wrote a book about it. Uh, ben Westhoff, the book is uh, Fentanyl Inc. Unbelievable. Uh, we have interviewed Steve Torrance, who is the world champion, top field dragster champion, who had a bunch of medical challenges in his life and was able to overcome them and become a four-time world champion. Uh, Eddie Braun, who's a stuntman. We did a whole episode on fear and facing fear. And how do you, how are you a stuntman for 43 years and not dead or disabled? <laughs> um, and then of course, tons of COVID stuff, uh, Harvey Risch, Peter McCullough, a lot of these guys, we actually just spent another um, hour with Peter today, kind of updating where, where things are going. And so um, not really afraid to tackle anything. I'm not really afraid of people with divergent opinions. Um, we've done a lot on physical training, which is really important to us on how to stay fit on the best medicine. I mean, you are your best doctor. The best doctor is the, is you that takes care of yourself, controls what you put in your body and how much exercise you get. Um, so that's, that's the podcast in a nutshell. Uh, we've just had an amazing time. We've made tons of friends. We've tra- traveled around the country, hanging out with people that we just met virtually and it's been, it's just been super rewarding and, and hopefully we can grow it enough where it, you know, it supplements our income enough that we, you know, can basically just do this. Cause that's what we would, I think this is what we would prefer to do. And I think we have an interesting voice, but I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe. I'm not. <laughs> well, that's terrific. So where can people get out of the podcast? Uh, we're on all the major platforms, so uh, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcast, uh, iHeart, um, et cetera. Um, and then uh, bsfreemd.com is the website, and everything is linked in there. Uh, we're going to start to do more video, I think, because I think it's important, and we haven't done as much. We're on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, not on Twitter, though. Maybe we should, but I find Twitter so irritating that I don't really want to take part in it. So. <laughs> I tend to agree with you on that one. <laughs> so, mate, Tim, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this uh, this chat. Hey, our pleasure. Fun sharing our, well, birth to current today experiences in a time capsule, I guess, so to speak. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories.
Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.